0: I'm Veronica Dagger and this is the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money and the world. The coronavirus pandemic has effectively shut down live events for the past few months. And that means many entertainers, singers, actors and comedians have seen their incomes dry up. So today we wanted to check back in with Maysoon Zaid. She's a comedian, writer and disabilities advocate. And she was a favorite guest of many Secrets listeners. Before the pandemic took hold, Maysoon toured more than 200 days a year, performing comedy shows around the world. She made most of her livelihood from her shows. Now she's had to pivot her business, adapt to a major loss of income and figure out what's next. She's joining us today to give us an update. Welcome
1: back Maysoon. Thank you so much for having me. What a weird time this is. Such a weird
0: time. How are you doing amid the weirdness?
1: Well, I'm alive, which is something that I'm sincerely grateful for. It's Ramadan right now. It's been very interesting and Easier in some cases and challenging in other cases to be stuck indoors um, during Ramadan. And I say that I flip-flop between the absolute most creative and productive I've ever been and just kind of rocking in a corner singing Dave Matthews songs quietly (laughs) to myself as I pet my cat Beyonce, wondering when this will all be over and I can hold a microphone again because I am Tinkerbell from Peter Pan. I fade to black without applause. (laughs) This is why
0: we wanted to have you on (laughs) because I knew you'd make us laugh. When did you first know the pandemic was going to affect your tour schedule? Because I know you tour a significant amount of the
1: year. I had a head start. I knew about two weeks before uh, the beginning of March. So uh, like, I, I think I found out The first time I really knew about it was February 18th. And I was flying back from a gig in Austria, in Vienna. And I spoke to a friend who was a reporter. And he was like, hey, listen, a pandemic is coming and it's going to be really, really bad. And I was like, hmm, my friend is never hyperbolic. Like he's British Pakistani. He's pretty dry. So this is probably bad, but I didn't know what that meant or how it would affect me. It just seemed very like vague. Well, I was supposed to go to California on March 1st. And on March 1st, I got my first message from my agents going, hey, traveling's not going to be happening. Things are going to be postponed. They're going to be virtual. By March 4th, all of my shows from March 1st through January 1st had been postponed or indefinitely gone. And that was the second that I knew we were in trouble and this was going to be huge because agents aren't going to lose billions of dollars. If it's not the real deal, not billions of dollars from me, but from all the other clients at the agency as well. I mean, in a two minute conversation, I lost like the average American's salary for three years, just in one shot. And so, I you know went to sleep one night with a full tour schedule through November of 2020 and I woke up with absolutely nothing to do and I had to recreate myself. That must have been devastating. So the very first show they postponed was devastating. By the time I got to like show number 6, it became maniacal laughter. it, It stopped being devastating. It really just got like cartoonishly funny because I was like the first show. I was like, what do you mean? Like I'm buying a house. I'm on a budget. I have all these things lined up that I'm doing 2020 is supposed to be the year I finally become a guest co-host on the view when Megan McCain goes on maternity leave I have planned this out perfectly I knew she was pregnant before she did and <laughs> you know and then suddenly my livelihood was completely gone my like tour life was gone, which is such a big part of me, like the traveling and the packing and the you know, the dude who drives my car service and the people who push my wheelchairs in the airport. Everyone was just gone.
0: In terms of the financial impact, you lost all of your income or almost all of it at this
1: point? I lost absolutely all of my income. And in two minutes and 43 seconds, I lost all of my upcoming income. And then, like I said, I took a week. I watched every episode of both seasons of Cobra Kai over. I watched (laughs) Steel Magnolias, Top Gun, (laughs) and 10 Things I Hate About You. Then I got back on my feet and I started hustling again. So like, first of all, I never believed the thing when people said, you should always have six months of your bills ready to go just in case of emergency. I was relieved and lucky and blessed to come into this with that six month saving ready to go. So how are you doing your work now? Once I realized that my live shows were gone, I knew immediately that I had to like dig deep into the hustle. So the very first thing I'm doing is that I'm working on a children's graphic novel for um, 10 to 12 year olds, basically a comic book series with one of the greatest publishers in the world. And I can't tell you who it is, because the contracts are being signed now and it's taking like an extra like forever ever because (laughs) everyone had to go digital and like lawyers had to encrypt and everything is just molasses but i got a book deal so that i could spend the pandemic writing a book i finished the first draft of the first book of the series i'm done with the outline of the second draft I doubled my typist hours. I have cerebral palsy. So I pay someone to type for me because I dictate and they type because it's too challenging. So in the time that I'm not on the road and I'm finally in my house, I'm using that time to write scripts, books, pitches for virtual TV shows that could be produced for the fall. But also I've become like a singing telegram I've signed up for every silly money-making pyramid scheme service online. So like I'm on Cameo and you can pay $25 for me to give you advice you don't wanna hear or (laughs) sing happy birthday to your mother. I'm on subtext and for $2 a month, we can text back and forth. And I'm on, you know, like a series of different weird platforms hustling my wares and trying to, to um, make some money. But I'm very, very lucky to have gotten this uh, book deal. And I'm looking forward to signing on the dotted line and having an income again. But from March 1st until now, my only income has literally been tips from doing stand-up comedy shows with Dino Vidala on Sunday nights that we call the BBQ show, the Big Brown Comedy Show in quarantine. Um, and that's basically what I'm living off of right now.
0: Well, I love your hustle, I think it's awesome. Um, So as you mentioned, you have cerebral palsy and you're an advocate for people who are differently abled. How do you think the pandemic is affecting the community?
1: It's been a very difficult time for the disabled community. The first thing that you have to realize is that a large portion of our community, not everyone, being disabled doesn't equal being sick, but. A lot of people in the disabled community do have underlying um, pre existing health conditions that make battling COVID if they get it more difficult. But also, you're looking at the fact that disability and poverty are often linked very closely. So, those who had jobs and lost them right now are struggling financially. Those who depend on personal care assistance are now either being put at risk because they're being exposed to people who come and go to multiple houses or don't have access to personal care assistance. And the upside of the pandemic, if there's any upside, is the fact that accommodations that disabled people have demanded forever, all of a sudden overnight, were given to everyone. So we've asked, can we go to doctor's appointments remotely? Because when we have a permanent condition, it's kind of silly to go back and forth every six months. And they said, no, you can't have a doctor's appointment online. Now doctor's appointments are online. When we asked if we could do virtual learning because classrooms weren't accessible for everybody, they said no, attendance is mandatory. Now all the classrooms have moved onto line. So many jobs that people with disabilities are great for, but they couldn't do because the commute was impossible, have suddenly now gone all online. So overnight, a lot of the accommodations that we have begged for have become standard. And in the future, it will be harder to deny those accommodations to disabled people because the proof it does exist and it does work, it's not too expensive and it's not too burdensome has been proven by this crisis. That would be a great
0: outcome. I hope it happens. Just wanna jump back to something you said before. How have you
1: had to adjust your life accordingly to deal with this pandemic? My life doesn't even vaguely resemble the before time. Nothing is the same, you know, from having to do my physical therapy virtually to seeing my mom from across the street. I walk with my mother three miles a day. She lives one mile away. I'm from Jersey. I hang out with my mom a lot. I'm Palestinian. We're like attached at the hip. and we now walk on opposite sides of the street. But one thing that hasn't changed is that she is still just as critical when we were on the same side of the street. <laughs> she never fails to point out that I'm disheveled. <laughs> you know, um, But I've, I've kept my workout routine up, but I used to fly 200 days a year. The idea that I don't even leave my house except for one three mile walk a day And then once a week, I drive to my friend's house on Jones Beach and we sit on opposite sides of her deck. And other than that, I'm indoors all the time. And I'm someone who was constantly flying, constantly driving, on stage, filming a soap opera. I mean, I was commuting to LA to film General Hospital from New Jersey. So a lot of comedians are saying this and I feel very unoriginal saying it but I haven't not been on stage for more than like three days in 20 years. The only time that I took a hiatus from comedy was twice. Once when my cat Lucy crossed the rainbow bridge, I took three weeks off because I was a basket case. Mm. And then once when my father passed away, Mm. um, I I took 40 days off. And other than that, I've never ever not been on stage. I've never not known when my next show is. I've never not been able to hop in my car, go to a dive club in New York City and do an open mic. Like the fact that I cannot get on stage and do stand-up comedy, it's it's like a piano player not being able to play piano. You know, they said Steph Curry built a basketball gym so that he could practice and shoot hoops and it's like, no matter how much I try to practice online, it's not the same with a virtual audience. I can't hear them laughing. If I turn their microphones on, the ruckus and racket and chaos in their houses will be mind numbing. Wondering what are you hearing
0: from your agents and from venues about when live events are gonna be allowed to resume?
1: Anytime I hear from my agents, it's bad because it's always to tell me that a show further in the future is being postponed yet again. So one of the big things is that the big, big conferences that I do, most of them are just rebooking all the talent for 2021. So I don't know what that year is gonna look like because I don't know when people are going to be comfortable going out to live events again. Um, the New York Arab American Comedy Festival which I co-produced with Dino Bidala, who I'm doing the online shows with. Um, Our 16th year kicks off in November, the week after the elections. And we don't know if that's going to be live or if it's going to be virtual, like we've reserved the club, but we don't know. So what I'm hearing is earliest show live is going to be January 2021. Right now we're at the time in America where our live states are reopening with absolutely no strategy or plan. So there is a chance that that's gonna be moved six months to June, 2021, if we really do spike again. Do you think people will view live events differently when they're allowed to attend them again? No, I don't think people are gonna change. And I think that they're going to flock to live events once it's allowed. I think organizers might shove fewer people in tight spaces than they used to. But I think if the organizers offer to shove you in like sardines, the audience is ready to go. And I'm basing it on the fact that like people have clearly been told to socially distance on the beaches in like New York and New Jersey and Florida, and they're not. So I doubt they're gonna do it when they're drunk and high at a concert or a comedy show.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh, well, you've given us so many laughs and many of our listeners really needed a, a laugh. So I appreciate that. Wondering, do you have any advice for them about being resilient these days?
1: My advice is if physically possible in the location where you're located, allow yourself to scream there's a scene in a movie called Dead Poets Society. You can definitely Google it and find it. And it's Robin Williams with a student, played by Ethan Hawke, and he makes him say "yop," Yawp, Y-A-W-P, and he makes him say it as loudly as possible. Every time that I think I can't do this anymore, I just scream the word "yop," and it like makes me feel so much better. I think the key to surviving this is A, accepting the fact that like nothing is in your control. And I'm giving advice to people about surviving, coming from a spot where I'm not worried about losing my house until around November. I have food and I have water. There are people without water to wash their hands. For people who are in financial distress, your life is worth more than the economy.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have Maisoon's encore episode. Her life growing up in New Jersey, how she reacts to critics, and her advice for parents raising differently-abled kids. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. Soon, you were born with cerebral palsy, but you said your parents never treated you any differently. How so?
1: I was the youngest of four girls, and my three older sisters were born non-disabled. I, um, due to an accident at birth, developed cerebral palsy. So even though my sisters weren't disabled, and I was, my parents held me to the same standard, meaning they loved me the way they loved my sisters. They didn't spoil me more or less, but they held me to the same standard also when it came to doing chores, when it came to doing schoolwork. They didn't ignore my disability. They acknowledged it, they worked with it, but they didn't allow me to use it as an excuse. So if I couldn't do exactly what my sisters did, they. Made made sure that I understood that trying and doing the best I could and what I could do was enough.
0: What a great message. How did your dad teach you how to walk?
1: So first, I want to be really clear. There's no shame in not walking or using any mobility device you need. So often we hear this term wheelchair bound, wheelchairs don't bind. We should call them wheelchair users, wheelchairs free people. But when I was growing up, my dad knew I was going to be splitting time between the Jersey Shore and Jerusalem. And the world is not accessible, especially back in my day. So he had two techniques. He'd put my feet on his feet and just walk. And his second, which was my favorite and the most effective, was he'd dangle a dollar bill in front of me and have (laughs) me chase it. And uh, it's so interesting because that was such a great motivator for me as a child. And it still is today as a comedian. I basically don't move unless people dangle money in front of me (laughs) to this day. (laughs) So
0: you initially wanted to be an actress, but you shifted to comedy. How come?
1: I dreamt of being on the daytime soap opera General Hospital, and I pursued that by studying acting. But when I went to audition, people wouldn't take me seriously. Sometimes I'd walk into the room, and they'd just say no before I even Just start, say no just say no you no Before I even introduce myself, where I'm like, I'm a tap dancer. They'd be like, no, thank you. Next. Whoa. And so what I realized was people on TV did not look like me. I wasn't seeing images of disability. I wasn't seeing people of color. I certainly wasn't seeing disabled women. Where I did see myself was stand-up comedy because of the original shaking comic, Richard Pryor. Uh. So I was like, oh, well, you can be a person of color. You can be disabled. You can be, you know— Bigger than a size 12, and you can work in comedy. This is a place where others thrive. And what was interesting was, I had no idea I was funny. I was a drama queen in college. I cried a lot because I had a lot of credit card debt. So I didn't <laughs> know I was funny until I took a class at Caroline's Comedy Club, and by my third show, I was a paid comic. I love it. Um, how did you
0: not let those initial no's and in acting turn you off to entertainment in general? Like, how did you have that confidence to be like, oh, I'll try another aspect of entertainment?
1: Well, I'm a lifelong underdog. Okay. First of all, I'm Palestinian. So we're always losing. Like it's our thing. But I'm also a Mets fan. And we're always losing. (laughs) So the idea of quitting just doesn't occur to me. I'm used to being knocked down and getting up again. Physically, as a human being, I fall down a lot and I get up all the time. So the no's didn't dissuade me. They energized me. Um, but I'm definitely at the point in my career where I'm done being fueled by no's and I'm ready for the yeses.
0: (laughs) Good for you. That's amazing. Um, What do you think is going to make the entertainment industry hire more differently abled people.
1: The entertainment industry needs to do their homework and realize that people with disabilities have the buying power of the entire country of China. And a lot of people with disabilities watch a lot of entertainment. We tend to be tied to our computers and our television because in a lot of cases, the outside world is not as accessible as our own homes, so we are A buying public. We are customers, we are eyeballs. And I think when the entertainment industry understands that first of all, the talent exists, but second of all, we put booties in the seat, that's when it's gonna change. I made my debut on General Hospital on June 21st. After three decades, my dream came true. And we trended, people were talking about it because people who didn't know who I am were excited to see a positive image of disability. People who did know who I am were happy to see my dream come true. People who like the Kardashians were wondering if I had been given away from them years (laughs) and years ago. So there was a lot of hype. And I think it's really important for people to know the talent exists. I think people think, oh, you just want a job out of pity. No, I know amazing artists who are disabled. We're out there and, we sell tickets. Within about five years of starting stand-up comedy, I was on a Live Nation tour. And then five years into that, I got my TV break and then the TED Talk. The TED Talk catapulted me to a whole different level. So tell me about that TED Talk. Were you surprised by the reaction you got? Yes. So um, I got the TED Talk because I met a woman named Pat Mitchell at my fairy god mentor, Lorreen Arbus's house. Um, Pat was like, you should do TED Women. And I said, talk to my agents, which is what I always say. And she said, no, it's not like that. We don't pay. And I was like, I don't do things that don't pay. So then I told my agent just like, oh, my God, funny. They want me to do this thing that doesn't pay. And he was like, run. And I was like, I have cerebral palsy. I can't. He's like, go. (laughs) And so I went and I still didn't take it seriously. And I actually didn't know how big of a deal it was until I got the gift bag. And the (laughs) gift bag had like $10,000 worth of stuff. It had, like, Tom's Boots and Google Glass at the time and, like, a clear membership. And I was like, uh-oh. Oh, this my is goodness. big time I should have prepared. <laughs> and, and then I got on stage and did it. The reaction was fantastic, but I still wasn't prepared. And then January 3rd, 2014, it came out, and I woke up, and millions, millions of people had literally retweeted it on my Twitter. And I was like, I just got, like... A million hits on Twitter. How did this happen?
0: But you've also had to deal with your share of cyber bullies. How do you deal with them?
1: So I was never made fun of as a child. I have the same best friends I had when I was five years old, but they never bullied me. They never made fun of me. I was the only Muslim kid in class, the only one who Santa skipped. People were still really nice to me. They'd take me in midnight mass, show me off, and be like, she's from where Jesus is from. And I'd be like, (laughs) I'm from Jersey. Um, So I was never really bullied until I went on countdown with Keith Olbermann. And when I became a full-time contributor on Countdown, I would do what any egomaniacal actress would do. I would Google myself. And that's when I realized that people were really viciously making fun of me. Part of it was people weren't used to seeing disability on TV if it wasn't being talked about. We weren't talking about disability. I was talking about politics. I was commentating on the news. So we never mentioned the CP. So part of it was people trying to guess what was wrong with me. Mm. I never thought anything was wrong with me. It's part of me. I have a disability, but I'm not like it's wrong. So people were like, she's high a stroke. She's drunk. She's high. And I always thought it was so interesting that people thought I was drunk because I was like, do you think they just let me walk on TV wasted? It's like my television debut and I'm reeking of vodka. And they're like, you go, girl, get on screen. Like, but a lot of people thought that. But the hate was very interesting. People saying things like, she looks like an honor killing gone wrong or so saying things that I looked like I was hit in the face with a frying pan and that my mouth was crooked and I was impossible to look at. And then one guy said I had chunky knees. And because of Chunky Knees Guy, I wore pants, leggings, on TV the next three times. And then I realized that when he said I had Chunky Knees... It was a shoulders-up shot. He had never seen my knees. I let this person control my wardrobe. Mm. And that's when I made the decision. I was never, ever going to let complete strangers on the Internet control or define me anymore. So when people ask me, how do you deal with bullying, I do three things. First, I educate. Sometimes people say things because they're ignorant. If they refuse to learn, I mock them because I'm a comedian and I (laughs) like to take a shot. And then I block them. But I don't physically block them. I mute them. The reason I mute them is blocking feels like victory to someone who's abusing you. Uh. They say, see, I scared her. I made her block me. I won. But when you mute them, they're just screaming into an abyss. And they think you hear them and that you're ignoring them. Meanwhile, you're long gone Googling cats on glass tables and having a laugh.
0: What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about people who are disabled?
1: Um, I think that people think we're happy angel snowflake babies who never grow up. So (laughs) a lot of times you hear parents say, my disabled child is the happiest child I've ever met. (laughs) And I think they want to believe that because they know that life is challenging, that pain is a struggle, that sometimes it's really hard. And I think it's important for people to know, we feel emotion. We deserve equal rights. We have dreams. We are fit to be in relationships. You can have a consensual relationship with a disabled person. A lot of times people feel like we can't date or we can't get married or we don't have the right to parent. 80% 80% of disabled people have their children threatened to be taken away with them from them in the first year simply because people believe that with a disability, you can't care for a child. With a disability, you can't be an equal partner. That's all false. We are full members of society with full potential, however it manifests itself, verbally, non-verbally, walking or not walking. We're adults when we're adults. We're kids when we're kids. We're human beings and deserve equality.
0: Thanks again to Maysoon Zayed for joining us twice. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. This episode was originally produced by Tanya Bustos. Today's version was produced by Trine Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yocum. Additional help from personal finance editor, Beré Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Hang in there, Secrets listeners. You've got this. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day, but what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash